0: Well, hello, everyone. Hey, got a question for you. If I told you that God wants you to flourish beyond your wildest imagination, would you believe me? (laughs) Uh, Or if I told you that God has in mind for you and for those you love uh, a life that is filled with satisfaction, that's deep and profound, a life of happiness? Would you dare to believe my words? In Matthew's Gospel, which records the things that Jesus said and taught, not everything, but many of the things he said and taught, we read these words. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down His disciples came to Him, and He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled." Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when... People insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. (laughs) Jesus goes on to say, look, when these kind of things start happening, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, obviously, this section is all about a life that is blessed, whatever that means. But the question here is, what exactly does that look like? The Greek word used there, and it's used in the plural, "makarii." makarios is the singular of it. It's just used over and over and over again This word makarios is translated all kinds of different ways. If you research it a little bit, you'll you'll probably find yourself scratching your head because it's translated blessed in the King James and in many other translations. But others use the word like congratulations. That's really the feeling behind it. God is saying congratulations when these things are true of you. Some suggest it has the meaning of prosperity or flourishing. Uh, Many solid and wonderful translations of the Bible have translated it happy. And so I'm actually calling this series The Pursuit of Happiness. But let's get one thing straight right up front, because for many of us, we don't like that word there, because we want to go, look, that's too shallow, Pastor, right? You know, happiness depends on happenstance, and it can shift with the weather, right? And we, we all know that. Let's be clear on one thing. This blessed life that God is describing here is not a shallow thing. In fact, I, I want to give you my definition of the blessed life. Uh, this, this series that we're kicking off today, I'm putting it like this, and this is my working definition, The blessed life is a profoundly satisfying life of flourishing regardless of our external circumstances. And we're going to unpack that each week, and I think you'll understand a lot better what I mean by that. It is, it is, make no mistake, typically, typically a happy life. But it's not rooted in any of the sources you might think. In fact, Paul, who was living this blessed life, said from a Roman prison, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. How could he say that? Because he was having fun? Chained 24 hours a day? How could he say that? Because his sports team was always winning championships? How could he say that? Because he loved the food in the prison. Because he was enjoying this experience? No, I can rejoice because I found the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He had learned through his union with the living Christ that he could flourish through all the ups and downs that life threw his way. That's what this word makarios means really means. Now, here's something I've concluded. I think I've told you before that a wise old preacher said to me years ago when I was just getting started in ministry, I just declared a call. He said, look, look, son, he called me, son, if you want to be really effective in ministry as a preacher you better know two things really well. And I'm just big-eyed, listening for every word. He said, you gotta know the Bible well, and you gotta really understand people. Wow, I've never forgotten that. And so, for decades now, I've tried to be a good student of both. I've tried to be a good student of the Bible and a good student of people of human nature. And here's one thing I've concluded in just watching people. I just watch people just study their lives, study what seems to drive them, what makes them tick, why they get up every morning. Here's what I've concluded. Everybody is searching for happiness. Everybody. In fact, I don't even think we can help ourselves. I think even the person who commits suicide is searching for happiness in their own way. They think it's going to relieve suffering, bring happiness. It's everywhere. I've heard parents say, look, I, 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 I know my kids can go down a lot of roads in life, but bottom line, I just want them to be happy. I've heard people in college young people say look I, I don't know what to major in i don't know what to give my life to what career to i but i'll tell you this i just want to be happy i've heard people in midlife say yeah it's kind of like that old song says i still haven't found what i'm looking for i've tried this i've tried that but i'll tell you this i am not willing to get trapped in a life where i'm not happy and i'll bet you've heard, or said some of those same things. There's a passion in the human heart, a drive, a desire for happiness. My goodness, it's even even promised in our U.S. Constitution, is it not? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. No doubt about it, everybody, everybody, wants to be happy. But here's where Jesus shocks us. What Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly as we look at these Beatitudes, what are called Beatitudes in the first part here, is just the opposite of what most people think of when they think of happiness. Let's take a quick look at Jesus' list here, okay? Here's Jesus' list. There it is. Now take a look at that list. You read it for yourself. Jesus thinking? I, I don't know about you. I look at that list and I want to go, Jesus, are you kidding? Are you really kidding? Are you pulling a joke here? I mean, poor in spirit? Whoever associated any associated any kind of poverty with a blessed life or happiness? That doesn't make sense. Mourning, come on, isn't that just the opposite of happiness? And you go right on, me, I mean, Jesus, what are you thinking? And you get right on down to the last one, and you go, persecuted? Persecuted? Are you kidding me? I think you'll agree with me. When you look at Jesus' list, on the surface, you have to wonder how he could give a list like this because it, I mean, frankly, it doesn't have anything to do with happiness, at least the way I think. So I'm, I'm shocked, I'm just shocked. I mean, it's the opposite of the way I think. But let's flip the script. Let's change the scenario. Let's say that I go and do a random survey of your friends, your classmates, your neighbors, your coworkers, some of your family members, just a random survey, the average person walking the streets of the Capitol District, what do you think their list would look like? Well, I don't know, but I came up, again, I've tried to be a student of human nature. I've literally interacted with thousands and thousands of people, and, and some of them spent hours talking to them, and, and this would be my list, of what I believe people are really looking for, what they think will bring them happiness. Here's my list. Lots of money. I mean, really, you know, it, some people say, yeah, I know, I know money can't buy happiness. Money can't buy everything, but it sure doesn't hurt, does it? I mean, it's worth giving a try. I believe I'd rather have lots of money. Okay, so I'll just start there. High self-esteem. You gotta be kinda proud of yourself You gotta feel really good about yourself. And you know, just put it out there. This is who I am. Endless entertainment. You know, we need to amuse ourselves to death. Self-reliance. Boy, that's a big one. It's promoted everywhere. Self-help books, talk shows, self-reliance. If it's to be, it's up to me. Right? Right? Self-reliance. Fashionable clothes, popularity, power, a carefree life, man, I don't want much stress, I don't want any hard times, there is my list. Now, I don't know, your list might look a little different, but I'll bet it would cover some of the same things. Those are the ingredients that the average person walking the capital district believes will bring them happiness. Now here's the deal, you've seen the two lists, right? If you put those lists side by side, here's what you conclude. Somebody's got it all wrong. Come on. It cannot, they cannot both be correct. Either Jesus got this happiness thing all wrong and he's badly mistaken about what leads to a satisfying and profoundly flourishing life or, or, or our popular notions are wrong. And over the next several weeks, we're going to explore this together. How can Jesus make such outrageous statements? We're going to explore that together as we learn about the pursuit of happiness. But today, let's begin with the first one. It's Matthew 5, verse 3, where Jesus said, Blessed, blessed, this happy, flourishing, deeply satisfying life I want for you. It's all gonna begin right here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, first of all, let's establish that he does not say, Blessed are the poor. Now, if you know your Bible well, you know that those words do appear in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter six. But as I read the totality of Jesus' teaching, I don't see Jesus ever commending poverty itself as an inherently good thing. Oh, he loved the poor people that he met. He commended the poor widow who had only two copper pennies and gave them, he used Lazarus as an example of a righteous but poor man who ate crumbs from the rich man's table. But I hope we all understand there is no inherent virtue in poverty. And although Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, I would suggest to you that as Christians, our mindset should basically be that poverty is generally a scourge that we would love to eliminate if we could and help everybody to flourish and have plenty, okay? That should be a mindset that we all take. Now, in the book of Proverbs, it does teach that sometimes, sometimes, poverty is a result of our own actions, sometimes. It can be the result of laziness, drunkenness, gluttony, and overindulgence in pleasure, And Proverbs 10, 15 says that it can actually be the ruin of a person, okay? So Jesus is saying something very different here. He says, poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? Are you poor in spirit? What's that about? A person who's poor in spirit is one who recognizes That they are spiritually bankrupt, broke, impoverished. One of the ways I've said it through the years, and I kind of like this because it's catchy for me, a person who's poor in spirit is one who's needy and knows it, who's needy and knows it. There's something worse than being broke, folks. It's being broke and not knowing you're broke. And people who have no money and keep buying on credit and going into deeper and deeper trouble, they're the ones that you should really pray for. They're needy, but they don't know it or they're not willing to acknowledge it. So what an amazing statement Jesus is making here. Jesus says, look, whoever you are, wherever you are on life's journey, the first step in coming to God is recognizing that you're spiritually broke. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever acknowledged that in your own life? In other words, I simply don't have, Rex Keener does not have what it takes in and of myself, no inherent goodness, no inherent value to make me pleasing and acceptable to God. In fact, it's even worse than that. Even the best I can come up with is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness that God requires. Whoa. I'm immediately reminded of that parable Jesus told in Luke's gospel chapter 18. Oh, it's a striking one where he talks about two guys praying in the temple. One of them's a Pharisee. The other is a tax collector. The Pharisee prays with his head high, looking up to God, proud of himself, said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Whoo, I keep the law, I tithe, I fast, I pray. I am really good, God. You're so lucky to have me on your team. And I thank you that I'm not like that tax collector over there, he just snarled at him, feeling so pompous. But the tax collector's over here and Jesus said it was like this. He wouldn't even so much look up to heaven. He was humble before God when he prayed and he just kind of said, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you know what Jesus said about those two dudes? He said, look, one of them went home justified before God, and it wasn't the Pharisee. That tax collector in that case was poor in spirit. God does not save the pompous and the proud. God does not save strutters and braggarts, but when that pompous and proud person finally sees himself as spiritually bankrupt, then he is ready to turn to God for help and receive God's grace and forgiveness. But it all begins with that poor in spirit thing. Hey, let me, let, let, occasionally, occasionally, a preacher says something that's profound, occasionally. It's not often, it doesn't happen a lot, but I'm about to drop a nugget on you right now. Please don't forget this. One of the strange and wonderful paradoxes of the Christian life is that the deeper we go with God, the closer we get to God, the more humble we feel about ourselves. Amen. That's that's a nugget right there, okay, Don't let that one get away from you right there. That's that the more humble you're gonna feel about yourself, the more you're gonna feel unworthy in your own righteousness in God's presence. When the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in his temple, his immediate reaction now, this is a man of God here, this is a prophet. This is a man who's walked with God. For His immediate reaction was, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I am unworthy. And later, God reveals through Isaiah the prophet, some years later, he reveals this in Isaiah 66, verse 2b. This is the one I esteem. You want to know the person out there that God really prizes highly and esteems he or she who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Billy Graham was only a man, but he was certainly respected as much as just about any Christian leader who ever lived. I'll never forget once he was interviewed by Larry King, and this happened numerous times, but Billy was always trying to be a witness to Larry King and so on, and and, And Larry King just respected him so much. But once Larry asked, Billy, what do you think God's going to say to you when you die? And Billy Graham said, well, I hope God will welcome me. But Larry, I, I just don't feel worthy. I'm a sinner. I have to trust in Jesus to forgive me. And I think that's the attitude all of us should have. That is poor in spirit. That's putting your trust totally in Christ. And when we get over ourselves and stop relying on ourselves and any inherent goodness we think we may have, we're ready to come to God for his forgiveness. And then guess what? He imputes to us his righteousness, And then and only then are we promised the kingdom of heaven. I like the way the Living Bible paraphrases Romans 5. It says, now we rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done in dying for our sins, making us friends of God. Max Lucado tells a story about something that happened in his boyhood, a man named Joe Albright. He was a rancher. And he, Max Lucado got to know his son. They both played football, but neither of them started or played much. They kind of sat on the bench together. And Joe Albright wasn't a mean guy, but he was a no-nonsense kind of, you know some people like this. I mean, you better not walk on the corner of his potato patch or he would chew you out, Right? He's one of those kind of guys, and Max had become friends with his son, and so one night after a football game, one Friday night, uh, and after the party that followed, uh, Joe Albright's son invited Max to go home with him and just spend a night at his house, and so Max said, I drove up my car, and I started to get out. And when I did, this bright spotlight was turned right on me. And he said, I saw Mr. Albright's silhouette on the porch. And Mr. Albright blurted out, who are you? What are you doing here? And Max said, I was literally shaking. I was trembling with terror. And it seemed like an eternity before my friend spoke up and said, it's okay, dad, it's Max, he's with me. Mr. Albright said, oh, okay, come on in, Max, glad you're here. Now, I want you to imagine the terror of standing before the judge of the universe someday in his awesome holiness, and the spotlight of judgment is turned on you, and the Lord says, what right do you have to be here? and you tremble before him because you have no credibility on your own, and then the Son of God says, he's with me. The Father will say, welcome, welcome, come on in. You see, real Christians, real disciples of Jesus are people who've acknowledged, I have no inherent value to offer God. No intrinsic goodness where I can proudly say, God, you are lucky to have me on your team. I'll tell you that. I'm worthy of forgiveness and of a relationship with you. No, real disciples are poor in spirit. Does that that describe you? Are you poor in spirit? You see, It's not an accident, really, that Jesus starts right here, because in a sense, this is the foundation for all the others we're going to look at. Each one builds on the one before. I hope at somewhere in your life, you've run across the book, it's a classic, really, called Mere Christianity. It's written by the Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis, and God's used it to to impact a lot of people. And and, and I love this part. It's on page 50 of my book here, where Lewis is describing our attempt, human, in fact, he says that all of history is this, humanity's attempt to be happy apart from God, okay? And then here's what he says. He says, the reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food, he changes the metaphor a little, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. This is critical for us to understand. We not only come into a relationship with Christ with this poor in spirit posture, but listen, listen now, listen, Christians, we live the rest of our Christian life with this poor in spirit posture. That's our attitude every day because God himself is the fuel that we run on. And so we live every day with this utter and complete dependence on God. Why? Because I don't have what it takes in and of myself to live the Christian life. And so I humble myself and cultivate this poor in spirit attitude. He lives his life through me. He lives his life through me. I'm enjoying researching and studying for this series and one of the books I'd never read is one by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's considered by many to be one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. And in this book called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, in talking about what this means, he says this. The Sermon on the Mount, in other words, comes to us and says, there is the mountain that you have to scale. There it is, the heights you have to climb. And the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain, which you are told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. He goes on. That, then, is what is meant by being poor in spirit. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce. It is nothing that we can do in ourselves. It's just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. That is to be poor in spirit. And then one final quote. And if one feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced him. That is the meaning of this Beatitude. Now, friends, this is so important to understand because if we don't get it as Christians, we can spend years trying to live the Christian life, but it's as exhausting as push, pushing a car up a hill. Oh, the car still looks good, but it's empty, no fuel. We were designed, a car was designed to run on gasoline, and you and I are designed to run on God. Oh, I know the commercial says America runs on Duncan, (laughs) but we were designed to run on God, and we've got to understand that. He is our food. He's our fuel. The Christian life is impossible to live in our own strength. It can only be lived by that utter dependence on him. So let me wrap up with this thought. Do you know what God expects from you? Do you? Do you know that long list that you have in your mind, all those shoulds and oughts that are constantly making you feel guilty? You know the list, right? where you're failing and not measuring up, that list of all the things you ought to be doing and that you think God wants you to do. It's an awfully long list. And boy, it gets pretty heavy to bear that, doesn't it? I'm suggesting as I close today that in your mind, dear brother and sister, you cut that list down to one thing. Abide in Christ. Stay connected to the vine. Because do you know what Jesus expects from you, dear exhausted Christian, on your own, apart from Him? Do you know what He expects? Nothing. Zip. Zero. Nada. He explicitly stated his expectations for you in John 15, verse five, when he said clearly, apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's what he expects from you. Apart from him, nothing. The Christian life is simply impossible to live without God in your tank, as your fuel. He knows that, and that's why he expects nothing from you apart from him. Oh, you can still go on doing your Christian activities. You can be involved at Grace Fellowship every week. You can go through the motions of Christianity, but you will bear no fruit that endures. Poverty of spirit, I want us to all get this, is not something that we eventually mature out of. No, no. We keep living with this poor in spirit mindset throughout our Christian life, and we say with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And you meet God every day, and you say, Lord, you know that I have nothing to offer you today except my brokenness and poverty of spirit. You alone can produce the character of Jesus in me. You alone can do his work through me. And as you make that decision day after day, here's what you realize. It's actually more than a decision. It becomes an actual disposition. It becomes a part of your character. It becomes a habit of the heart. (laughs) As day by day, I recognize my utter dependency on God. Now, final word. Some of you are asking how. Yes, preacher, but how, how, how? How do I become poor in spirit? How do I gain this humble quality that God esteems so highly? One suggestion, just one. I would suggest that you spend some time every day looking into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's portrayed in the gospels. And I want you to look at him and look at him, and look at him again, and you cannot look at him very long without feeling your absolute poverty of spirit. That is the start, that is the middle, and that is the end of the Christian life. Congratulations. Now, you are truly blessed. Father, Thank you for all that we're gonna learn as we dive into your word in these weeks. Thank you for the blessedness of being poor in spirit. It all begins there. And we live the rest of our lives as your disciples in utter dependence upon you because you are our food, you are our fuel, and you've been very clear with us that apart from you, We can do nothing. Let us live in that realization and let us gaze on your face day by day in Jesus' name, amen.